we we come back to our story that we have been um, in the middle of, in the book of Isaiah, and we are looking into uh, really the most marvelous story that's ever been told, and that is the story of the servant of the Lord, who we've seen will have the spirit of the Lord, that he might be the prophet of the Lord, and come then to be the Christ, or the Messiah of the Lord. And really what we've got over these last few weeks is some insight into the interworkings of the Godhead. We've, we've peered into the deep things of God, and we've seen what is sometimes called the covenant of redemption, or the pact of salvation. That is a pact made within the Godhead. We've seen the Father commissioning or calling the Son to become His servant and to be sent into the world. We've seen the Son, the servant, faithfully responding to his father's commission, although it was it is going to be a mission of, of hardship and toil, but that he would trust in the sovereign hand of his God, that he would be held and gripped by his father in this work that God has called him to do. Really what we've seen unfolding is that God is going to deliver his people through a greater exodus. Um, we just sang out of Isaiah 51, and if I could read that to you in verse 9, Isaiah 51, verse 9, that that Exodus language is being brought back into the picture. So Exodus 51 and verse 9 says, oh, excuse me, Isaiah, I'm sorry, Isaiah, forgive me, uh, awake, awake, it says in Isaiah 51, 9, awake, awake, put on strength, O arm of the Lord. Awake as in days of old, the generations of long ago, was it not you who cut Rahab into pieces? And when you hear Rahab there, think Egypt. And you can trace the cost references to see that. Who pierced the dragon? Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep? Who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? So the prophet is looking back to what God did in the Exodus. Are you not the God that delivered his people from bondage? Are you not the God that parted the seas so the redeemed of the Lord could walk through? And are you not the God that then judged Egypt with those same waters? And then look what he says. The ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy, not temporary joy, beloved, but everlasting joy shall be upon their heads, and they shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. I'm tempted to sing, but I will not do that. <laughs> sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Praise be to God. Now, certainly there is an anticipation of his people coming out of Babylon. Because the prophet, remember, is prophesying that God's people, in not that far future, will be sent into captivity in Babylon. God is bringing the curses of the covenant upon his people for their idolatry, their spiritual adultery. But he's speaking of something greater than just returning into the land. Um, I was reading this morning 1 Kings, where the temple, Solomon's temple, was, was consecrated. And we you read there that the cloud of Yahweh, the Shekinah glory of God, filled the temple so that the priests were unable to minister because of the intense, thick presence of God. His glory, another way to say it, is His weightiness. The weightiness of Yahweh was present, and they could not even be in the temple. That never happens when they return from Babylon. The glory of the Lord never fills the temple. And if you know their history, God, not long after they returned from Babylon, went silent for 400 years. There was no word from God, no prophetic utterance in the land. So when he speaks of this new exodus, it is something far greater than just returning into the nation of Israel. But it is the exodus of the Lord Jesus Christ who has come to deliver his people, not from Egyptian enslavement, but from spiritual bondage and the, the chains of our sin, to loose the shackles and to set captives free. And so we dive back into that story of the servant of Yahweh who is to come. And we pick up today in Isaiah 52, in verse 13. 
Isaiah 52 and verse 13, and this is the word of God. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him God. May God bless today the reading and preaching of his word. Let's pray. Father, we come now, and we come to certainly a weighty text of Scripture as we consider the, the weighty reality of the suffering servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he went through on behalf of men for the glory of God, that he would suffer and that he would die and that he would absorb the wrath of God on behalf of his people. So I pray, God, today that you might remind us of the glorious salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. That you might remind us of the calling that you placed on our lives, not only to serve you, but to suffer for you as Christ suffered on our behalf. So use this time for your glory, for the growth, edification, encouragement, conviction of your church, and for the salvation of the lost. We pray this in Jesus' name. Well, church, if you were given the opportunity to tell this story, to write this story, what might it have looked like from your perspective? The story of God's Son coming into the world to save sinners. If you told the story, or if I told the story, maybe he was going to, he would have been born in a palace with, with pomp and prestige, and, and you can picture some scene out of a movie where there's thousands upon thousands of people lined up, and there's the baby Jesus held up, and all are bowing down and worshiping the Son of God who's come, born of a virgin. We might picture him born into a, a family of, of, of royalty, with, with crowns and thrones and castles and, and wealth and power. We might think that as he came into the world, he would have been largely victorious over the hearts of wicked men, that he would have crushed all of the evil rulers of his day, that he would have dethroned Caesar, that he would have dethroned Pilate, that he would have dethroned Herod, that he would have destroyed self-serving governments that seek their own power and wealth. Maybe if we would have told the story, all of the nations would have served him and followed him and bowed down before him. I mean, how could they not serve the one that was gentle and gracious and kind and loving and so full of truth? How could they not believe the Lord of glory? And yet as we read the Gospels, and as we read today the book of Isaiah, we see that God had planned something far different than our imaginations might have concocted. We see that God has ordained for his servant suffering, unbelief, and rejection. That that is his path to glory. And as we'll see today, towards the end, that is often the path for his church as well. And that is how God chose to be victorious over sin and over death. That is how God shows that he would be glorified through his faithful servant, and Lord willing, through his faithful church. 
As we dive back into this story, into this text, we see first that this son will be exalted. This servant will be exalted through suffering. He will be exalted through suffering. Look at verse 13. Behold, there's that word again. We saw it a couple weeks ago. God is unveiling. God is, is pointing man's attention to his servant. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. It seems that we begin the introduction today of this servant with the conclusion of his ministry. We're looking to the end, because the beginning doesn't, doesn't look like this, right? We're looking to the goal, or how his ministry terminates, that is, in glory, in exaltation, that he is praised and revered and recognized and worshipped and exalted by men. This is the same language that Isaiah used when he saw the Lord high and lifted up. In Isaiah chapter 6, you remember his vision where he's stood in the very throne room of God. And he said, I saw in the year the King Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh high and lifted up. And we learn here that this servant will also be high and lifted up. He will be exalted. Well, we know this, right? We have the whole book. We have, we have the end of the book. Paul tells us that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above Every name. We read in the book of Acts that he was therefore exalted at the right hand of God. We read in the book of Hebrews that after making purification for sins, he sat down, he rested from his labors at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited more excellent than theirs. So he will be high and lifted up. He will be exalted and worshipped and revered. This speaks yeah. of his place and his status with God. But he will be exalted through much suffering. As we look at verse 14, it says there, as many were astonished or appalled at you. Now who is he speaking to? He says, at you. Some translations insert two words there. You can tell they're inserted because they're in italics. At you, my people. It's, it's understood that he's speaking to Israel. As many were astonished at you, my people, now speaking of his servant, his appearance was so far beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That word astonished means shocked or appalled. Have you ever been shocked by something, an image, a person? You come around the corner and there's someone, something there that you do not expect to see. He says they will be shocked, appalled at his appearance. Now, this word is used in the, New, in the Old Testament often speaking of God's judgment, that man will be shocked when he sees what God does when he brings his judgment and his wrath. And we, we learn here that men will behold the servant of Yahweh, commissioned and sent by God, and they will be shocked at his suffering. They will be shocked as he is visibly disfigured and distorted. Our Lord would be so bloodied and so battered that it would be difficult to discern a human face. You would have a hard time looking at him and recognizing that it was that man, Jesus Christ. His form was beyond human semblance, beyond that of the children of mankind, because he was so marred. We know of his physical anguish, his physical suffering leading to the cross, and then on the cross. But we do not want to neglect what I think is even more, and that is his spiritual suffering. You remember, hours before his death, Jesus took some of his faithful followers to a garden, and it was there that he prayed. And we read in Matthew 26 that he took Peter, 
and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done as you will. You know the rest of the story. He, he sweat great drops of blood, or sweat as if drops of blood. He said his soul is in anguish. His followers, they fall asleep. They're exhausted. They do not understand the nature of the hour of what was about to befall upon their Lord. And he asked his father, may this cup pass. What is this cup? This is the cup of his suffering. It is the cup of his anguish, and it is the cup of the wrath of God that he would drink for men. It is the holy, white, hot hatred of God against evil and sin. Not Jesus' sin, beloved, but my sin and your sin. He drank our guilt and our anguish. It is, a, it is as if Jesus Christ went to hell for you, beloved. He experienced the hell of God's holy hatred against sin. Please, please do not think that God takes sin lightly, that we can just excuse sin away today because we're forgiven. As people speak of the grace of God with, with such shallowness to say, well, I'm, you're forgiven, right? What does it matter? Jesus died for us. It doesn't really matter anymore. He cares so much about sin that he killed his only son. This was his only choice that he saw right for sin to be dealt with, for God's, for man's guilt to be erased, for the wrath of God to be satisfied. And we see that our Lord, the faithful servant of Yahweh, is obedient even unto death. Not as I will, Father, but your will be done. And it is through his suffering that he would be high and lifted up. It is through the brutality of the Romans and through the hatred of the Jews and the indifference of the masses, through the painful, shameful death of the cross, that Jesus Christ would get glory. It seems that we see many patterns like this in the Bible of rejection and exaltation, pointing to the servant of Yahweh, pointing to Christ. You remember the life of Joseph. He was a good man. He was a, a, a righteous man, the Bible says. And his brothers threw him in a pit. They were going to leave him there for dead. One of them was kind and said, let's not kill him. We'll sell him into slavery. Right? And then he's later on thrown into prison. He's falsely accused. And later in his life, he is exalted to be the number two man in the in the biggest nation in the world. He's basically the prime minister of Egypt, that he might preserve the godly line of the Messiah. He was rejected and then exalted. We see that in the life of Moses. He defends one of his own kinsmen. They turn on him. He's rejected by his own people. He has to flee because Pharaoh seeks to kill him, seeks his life. And later on, he would be exalted as God's prophet. He would be the man that God chose to go and stand on behalf of his people, to call this wicked king to repent and let his people worship him rightly. We see this in the life of David. When, 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 Samuel, when Samuel comes to anoint a new king of Israel, Jesse, David's father, doesn't even think to call him out of the field. He wasn't even a worthy choice to potentially be a king. He was young and he was ruddy. And he was just that little shepherd boy that was out in the field. And we see that when David is then anointed as king, the current king Saul wants to kill him and chases him. He hides in caves. He pretends to be a madman at some point. He, he lives with the uncircumcised Philistines. And then he is exalted and raised up as the prototypical king, the faithful king of God's people. He is that, that benchmark, a sinner, 
but always a man after God's own heart. We see this same pattern with the suffering servant, that he will be rejected by his own people. He will be rejected and hated by the masses. He will be sent to a cross to die, and then he will be high and lifted up. He will be glorified through that anguish. I think we see maybe a similar pattern as well with the Gentiles. Listen to what Paul says about, about you, beloved. There's probably some Jewish blood here, but by and large, this is a room of Gentiles, right? This is what Paul says, that once you were called the uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision. You were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Sounds like rejection. That sounds like we were sort of cut off from the benefits and blessings of God. But then as the servant comes and reveals the mystery of Christ, we see that the Gentiles are grafted in and raised up as adopted sons of God. Praise be to God. So our Lord will be rejected and exalted. Now, the next verse is, is sort of challenging. It says in verse 15 that he will sprinkle many nations. He will sprinkle uh, many nations. Some of our Lutheran and Presbyterian friends want to say that this is about baptism. I, I don't think that it is. Um, I think a lot of commentators have tried to get away from this word. Surely he can't mean sprinkle. I mean, what, how does that even fit here? What is he sprinkling nations? If you have an ESV, you see a footnote that it says, or startle is another interpretation of that word. But this is a significant word in the Old Testament. It is a priestly word in the Old Testament. We read in the Old Testament that the, the priest was to sprinkle the people with blood to expiate their sin or to remove the guilt of their sin. That came through the sprinkling of the blood of a sacrifice. We also see the priest in the Old Testament sprinkling with water. And that is a cleansing, purifying act that the priest would do. Jesus Christ is our great high priest. And it seems fitting that he will sprinkle the nations. He will purify and expiate the sin of the nations. John Calvin sees this sprinkling as the preaching of his word. That his word will sprinkle the nations. I think however we look at it, the result is, is telling. Because in verse 15, we read that kings shall shut their mouths because of him. Kings shall shut their mouths because of this sprinkling of the nations. For that which has not been told them, they see, and that which they have not heard, they understand. So there is an element of revelation here. The kings of the world will be shocked and appalled at the appearance of this servant. He will be beyond human semblance. And he will sprinkle many nations and their mouths will be shut. Because they will see and understand something that they have not previously understood and seen. Paul speaks of this in a, in a final sense, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 15. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, that as in Adam... All die. In Adam, all die. The Bible is clear, beloved, that all human beings are born in Adam. We are born with Adam's corruption, and we are born with Adam's guilt. We are not born innocent, and then once we sin, we are now sinners and guilty, but we are born corrupted and guilty because we are born in Adam as our covenant head. In Adam, all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Of course, that doesn't mean that everyone will be saved, but all that are in Christ will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, at his second coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end. Christ returns, and then comes the end, beloved. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we read here 
that Christ at his second coming will shut the mouths of kings with finality. He will destroy every power, every authority, every opinion raised against God, every king that sets himself up as the sovereign, every despot ruler with murder in his heart, every idolatrous king that calls his people to worship him or to worship the idols of the day, they will all be silenced in one crushing effort of the Lord our God when Jesus returns to deliver the kingdom to his Father. But this will also happen in a progressive manner. As we see in Romans chapter 15, if you want to turn there, Romans 15, 18. Paul writes in verse 18, he says, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to do what? To preach the gospel. Not where Christ has already been named. Paul was a, was a pioneer. He was a trailblazer. Right? He wanted to be ahead. He wanted to go where there was no church, no missionary. Lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, now here is our verse, Isaiah 52, 15, quoted. Those who have never been told of me, of him, excuse me, will see. And those who have never heard will understand. So Paul quotes Isaiah 52, 15, that through the preaching of Christ, through the pronouncement of the good news, the declaration that the King has come, those that live in darkness shall see. Those that never knew the Hebrew Scriptures, those that never knew the Old Testament laws, those that have no connection to Judaism, i.e. the Gentiles, they will see the unsearchable riches of Christ. They will understand the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And what is that plan, beloved? Christ in you, the hope of glory. That the Gentiles would be grafted in as a wild olive branch. So we see that these kings' mouths will be shut. Whether through repentance... In this life, as the gospel is proclaimed and God opens their eyes, or in judgment at the end of the age when Christ re returns to make all of his enemies a footstool. The Son will be exalted through his suffering. Secondly, the Son will encounter hardened unbelief. The Son will encounter hardened unbelief. Isaiah 53, 1. Now the prophet is speaking, I believe, these texts are, are, are tricky in that the speaker and the who he's referring to switches at times. We're looking forward at times to the suffering of Jesus, and then we're looking back. He was pierced for our transgressions, so the tense changes. But here the prophet says, Who has believed, Isaiah 53, what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? There's sort of a lamenting here of the prophet. Who's, who's believed our reports? Who has embraced the truth of this Messiah? Has anyone heard? Does anyone care? The Apostle John picks up this, this scripture in John chapter 12. And we read in verse 36 that when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. John 12, 37 Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. Consider that, beloved. He's healing the sick. You know that paralyzed man that sat at the gate that you've known your whole life, that's never walked a day in his life? Jesus spoke, and that man stood up. And men said, wow, and then they went home, unfazed by what they saw. They saw him doing signs and wonders. They saw him doing miraculous deeds. They still did not believe in him. When we read in verse 38, it was so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? 
You see, the, the, the John here is telling us that this scripture is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And that same lament is happening in Jesus' day. Who has believed? The Christ has come. He is performing signs and wonders. He is the most gentle and lowly and humble and meek and gracious man. He preaches like no other man has ever preached in the history of mankind and ever will. And John laments, who has believed what he has seen with his eyes? And beloved, this is the lamentation of all believers, is it not? Who has heard our words? Who has embraced this glorious Savior that we're presenting? Paul, as well, picks up this scripture in Romans chapter 10. In Romans 10 is a wonderful, wonderful passage. We learn there that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Right? That the gospel is news, beloved. The gospel is words. So I get the meaning of the t-shirt that that preach the gospel, and if that time, use words. But that is sort of incoherent, because the gospel is a message that needs to be preached. We have to speak the good news. And he says in Romans chapter 10, how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. How beautiful are the feet of the evangelists. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? In Paul's day, after Christ had been crucified, they were lamenting the lack of response from the hearers. I don't think many in the world say those words. Look at the beautiful feet of those preachers coming to preach Christ to us. That's not usually the response that we get these days. But this lament is really the lament of every preacher, every Christian throughout history. The indifference to the grace of God. The lack of response to the saving message of Christ. Listen to one Brian Russell. He says, it is a lament expressed by preachers of the gospel throughout the age. When so few of their hearers are converted... A sadness that every parent expresses over an unconverted child. A sorrow every Christian knows who witnesses about Christ to friends who are unmoved and unconcerned about the glories of God. And we say those same words. Who has believed our reports? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord is the power and might of Yahweh. Has anyone seen it? He says, these are not just the words of a 7th century B.C. prophet who is sort of depressed because his ministry is seemingly unsuccessful. But these are fitting words for every true believer that is concerned with the glory of God and the salvation of the lost. Who has believed our report? We've come with good news. God has called us to be heralds. He has saved us from our sin. The most amazing thing that can ever happen to a person is happen to our souls, and no one seems to care. How can we be encouraged with this sort of response? And, and I just want to be a, a human and say, it, is, it can be discouraging. You know that we, we minister at the local abortion mill, and we're there this past week, and it can be discouraging seeing the response of our community. I was the guy on the corner with the sign. You've seen the weird guy with the sign before. And the sign simply says this, equal justice for all humans. Now, who cannot amen a sign that says equal justice for all humans? But we're giving away what we're stating because there's a picture of a, a baby in the womb, right? And, beloved, the, the hatred that you see in people's eyes, the language, the middle fingers... The sweet grandmothers that curse your curse you, the 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 looks of pity that some ignorant fool really believes this stuff enough to stand out and try to tell people about Jesus. It it can be discouraging. So how can we be encouraged? A few ways that I had. Uh, firstly, be encouraged to press on 
in proclaiming the gospel. Paul says, since, the since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. People will not get saved, beloved, because of our intellect. They don't get saved because we have wise, cute ways to present the gospel. We need to get creative and do something different. No, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. This is how God saves sinners. We declare that all men are guilty in their sins before a holy God, and that God in His wonderful grace offers salvation to any sinner, even now in this moment, that would repent of sin and believe on Christ to be saved. Our God is mighty to save and able to save and willing to save any soul that would turn to Him with an open hand, saying, I need today to be forgiven. And it is through that preaching of Christ that God saves. It is the only means that He uses, beloved, through the pronouncement of the gospel. It can be on a tract, it can be in a church, it can be from a preacher, it could have been your sweet grandmother pointing you to Christ, but God saves through the announcement of His Son. To be encouraged to press on proclaiming that one saving gospel. Secondly, be encouraged towards faithfulness instead of looking at the results. If we look at the results as Christians and how the church is advancing, we are going to be discouraged. But God calls us to be faithful and to trust Him with the results. Remember what we just read. The mouths of kings will be shut. Whether through repentance or whether through Christ vanquishing His enemies, He will reign and He will be victorious. Thus, we are on the winning team, beloved. We serve the one true King of kings and Lord of lords. So press on in faithfulness, not in looking at visible results and responses. Some plant, some water, and it is God alone that gives that increase and that result. Thirdly, be encouraged that unbelief is not a modern phenomenon. Unbelief is not just a modern phenomenon. Have you read the book of Jeremiah lately? God says, I'm sending you to a people that are going to hate you, reject you, and kill you. And you be faithful to me. And none of them will believe. They are not going to respond positively to your word. And we look at that and we say, that is a failure. That is a fool's errand. And God says, my servant was faithful to the end, and he was perfectly successful in what I called him to do. Remember, beloved, as much as we don't rejoice in it, God is glorified when sinners come to Christ in salvation, and God's justice is exalted when sinners harden their heart and reject his mercy. His justice is glorified. Fourthly, and lastly, be encouraged that even if none believe, Jesus Christ gets the praise and the glory. You know, there's a little a saying that's sort of gone around in Christian circles in a number of years in, these, in this time is, even if one, and that's the thinking, even if one would believe all of our ministry efforts would be worth it. But I love a little book by Ryan Denton. If you have any desire towards evangelism, I exhort you, I command you with authority I don't have to command you. <laughs> Read that book. We have one in the library. Even if none is his title of that book, he's often asked, how many came to Christ today? How many sinners came to Christ today? And he says, every single one, because I pointed every last one to the Savior, and it is God's job to save. Right? We point them all to Christ. We bring them all to the Lord Jesus, and He is the one that saves. And even if none believe, beloved, even if zero positive responses are gleaned, God is glorified through His servants being faithful. But be encouraged, beloved, that even if none, Christ is praised. So the Son will be exalted through suffering. The Son will face hardened unbelief. Thirdly, the Son will be rejected by men. Isaiah 53, in verse 2 he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form 
or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. We see here, beloved, in this text, the vitriol that Christ was received with. We see here the venom and the violence that the Lord Jesus received in his life. He was a normal man. He had no outward form of beauty or majesty. You would not have seen him and said, there's the Messiah. There he is, unless God revealed it to you. Remember when, when Saul was anointed as king, he stood head and shoulders above all the other men. And from a human perspective, you said, he's the man, he's the king, he's the leader, right? He's the warrior that will, men will follow that one. And how did it end up with Saul? Not well, right? Not well. But God calls David, this young, ruddy, handsome little man that seems not all that impressive from the outside. God commissions David to, to slay Goliath, right? That is a picture of us, right? We are not, beloved, we're not David. We're on the sidelines, cowering with Israel. Jesus Christ is the hero that comes to slay that wicked giant that is a picture of our enemy, the devil. And so Jesus is a normal man. He is, doesn't look anything significant that we would esteem him or see beauty in him or strengthen him. But he was rejected by men. He was despised. We read that Jesus Christ was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. Again, I just ask, if you were to write this story, would you imagine God's Son coming into this world to be a man of sorrows? To live a life of grief and anguish? To live, to, to perform a ministry that in his earthly life, by all accounts, was a total failure? At Pentecost, he has 120 men left, men and women, that are following him. He had crowds in his day, but they did not persevere. They couldn't keep up with the hard sayings. They wanted a free lunch, but when he called them to serve faithfully, to take up their cross, they abandoned him. His ministry seemed from the outside to be a failure. He did not transform the culture. He did not reform the government. He had no massive following. He had no great name that was respected on this earth. He was a man of sorrows, he was familiar with grief and turmoil, he was despised by those he came to save, he was hated by those that he would come to die for, and from all accounts, his ministry was a failure in man's eyes. But we see lastly, that the son's suffering was decreed by his father. The servant's suffering was ordained by the father himself, and I'm jumping over to Isaiah 53 verse 10. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. He has put him to grief. Beloved, for all the attention that we might place on the unbelief of the masses, on the hard hearts of the Jews, on the indifference of the Gentiles, we read here that it was the will of the Father to crush his servant. This was the eternal plan of God. There is no failure with our Lord. There is no mistake with our Lord. There is no plan B or what do we do now or wringing of hands with our Lord. Jesus Christ came to suffer. He came largely to be rejected by his own people. He came to die. His path of glory would be through toil and strife. And I think the Bible is clear that the Lord has ordained a similar path for his church. The Lord has ordained a similar path for his church. You know, we've taken up this idea often in our evangelism that we want to preach all of the blessings of God. There are many blessings. Come to Christ and you'll have peace, you'll have new purpose, your anxieties will be stilled, your fears will be stilled, but we forget Christ's call to discipleship. We forget Christ's call 
to take up the cross, to join him on the death march, to die to ourselves, to suffer with him. Let me read you some texts. We read last week this one from 2 Timothy, that all who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. Philippians, Paul writes, this is Paul's desire. Listen to the Apostle Paul's desire. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Or that I may enter into the fellowship of his suffering. I'm <clears throat> just be honest, I don't know about you, but that's not a common prayer of mine. That's not on my prayer list. Lord, help me to suffer with you. But that was Paul's ambition. We read in the book of Acts that they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Romans chapter 8, one of the loftiest, most glorious passages in all of Scripture. We read this, that the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Remember, his path was rejection and exaltation. And Paul says that if we suffer with him, we will be glorified with him. It's not just Paul, Peter as well. What credit is it if when you sin and beaten for it, you endure? Right? You had it coming. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He goes on elsewhere, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you also may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of God and glory, Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. And of course, lastly, Jesus' words, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. This is what the Bible has to say about our walk with the Lord Jesus. Yes, there is more to be said, but we cannot neglect these passages. The righteous servant of Yahweh came to suffer for sinners, to lead his people on a spiritual exodus. He came to deliver you, beloved, from the bondage of your sin, the shackles that you were held by. And he calls you then, as his redeemed son or daughter, to live in a world that hated him, that will also, if you look like him, hate you. His path to glory was sorrow and suffering, and yours may very well be too. Now, I'm going to end this message on a bit of a, a downer here. If I was in a preaching class, I'd probably fail, because I'm supposed to lift you up right at the end of the sermon. But traditionally, many churches have Good Friday services. And the Good Friday service is meant to be gloomy. It's meant to be dark. You leave the church reminded of the Lord's death, of the darkness of the cross. And I want us to leave here reminded of the suffering of our Lord. Reminded of all that it meant for him to be the satisfaction for our sins. This is a historic event that we look back to, beloved. It's not just a doctrine. It's not just a myth. It's not just a thing in words. But Jesus Christ suffered so that we could sit here today forgiven and set free and so that we could then declare the excellencies of him who called us. And I promise as we return next week, we will rejoice in his substitutionary death and resurrection on behalf. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Oh, we thank you for the precious blood of Christ that has cleansed us of our sin. Lord Jesus, we count it in honor 
for any suffering that we might experience in this life. We count it an honor to, to join you in the fellowship of all that you experience, not just the glory, not just the blessings, not just what we deem good, but we know that you often conform us into the image of yourself through trial and fire and hardship. So God, I pray that we might suffer well for your name. I pray that we might be a people that have joy and contentment in Christ, that our experiences mean nothing if we have Christ, because to live is Christ and to die is King. We thank you that you've called us. We thank you that you've saved us. We thank you for the promise of eternity that we will on that day stand in your presence, robed in your righteousness. We long for that day. May we remain faithful as you tarry. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, if you would please stand as we're going to sing. Slow down, church. As we're going to sing praises of our God. This song is a short hymn of praise, but we do this rejoicing in all that our Savior has done on our behalf. Praise God from whom all blessings flow.